What's wrong with economic theory? Hello, everyone. My name is Hansel Kronkenponsen. Today, I'd like to talk about what's wrong with economic theory, or if you prefer, what economic theory really says versus what some people would like it to say, and what features of economic theory generate or facilitate that confusion. When I say economic theory, I mean the standard conventional economic theory you may have encountered in such classes as Economics 101. Its proper name is Neoclassical Microeconomic Theory. And to be even more precise, I'll be talking about what is known as the welfare economics component of economic theory, which is the bit that deals with evaluating economic systems and policies. So things like the supposed advantages of perfectly competitive markets, socially optimal outcomes, utility maximization, efficiency, and that sort of thing. So, what do I see as the problem with economic theory? Well, let me give you some examples of economic theory gone astray. Have you ever encountered statements ostensibly about economic theory or based on economic theory that sound anything like the following five examples? The free market generates socially optimal outcomes. If we interfere with the free market, everyone will be worse off. We can't change the wages one receives in the free market because that would be inefficient. The free market allocates goods and services in the best way possible. The case for the free market involves only a few non-controversial value judgments. My contention is all these statements go beyond what economic theory really says. And I'm not just referring to the relatively trivial issue of the imprecise concept of the free market, which I'll discuss later. To the extent these statements are attributed or related to economic theory, they're misinterpretations or misrepresentations of what economic theory really says, which I contend are made possible and facilitated by some awkward bits within economic theory itself. My mission in this podcast is to help people avoid these types of errors. Let's start at the very beginning with something called utility. If you're familiar at all with economic theory, and I assume most people will be, at least to some extent, you may recall economic theory deals with the goal of maximizing utility. Welfare economics in particular purports to explain what economic systems and policies are best in the sense of maximizing utility. So what is utility in the context of economic theory? Despite what you may recall from Economics 101, it's not really that simple. If we were talking about utility in a broader philosophical context, what people generally have in mind is something involving happiness or satisfaction or something along those lines. But we'd find a robust debate about what it is exactly and how to measure it and so forth. In the context of economic theory, the situation is a little different. We don't have that sort of general debate and discussion about what utility is. But what we do have is two very distinct interpretations of utility. We can make sense of economic theory using either interpretation, but how we interpret the theory will be different and the sorts of errors and confusion about what the theory says will also be different. 
So let's dive right in. What are the two interpretations of utility in economic theory? Well, the older and what I would consider the weaker of the two interpretations, for reasons I'll discuss shortly, is the traditional, literal sort of definition that harkens back to early utilitarian philosophy, in which utility refers to happiness or satisfaction or something along those lines. Wish to move things along, I'll just start referring to as happiness. The interesting aspect of this first interpretation of utility in economic theory is that it's meant to refer to an internal, subjective, inaccessible perception of happiness that doesn't correspond to any outward indication of happiness. This inaccessible, subjective quality of utility is very distinctive to the field of economics, and I might even say idiosyncratic. It leads to a very interesting and distinctive property of utility that is crucial to the logic of economic theory, which is that utility, as defined in economic theory, cannot be used to make what we call interpersonal utility comparisons. Interpersonal simply means between people. So what we're saying is, if we're using this type of utility, there's no way to compare utility across different people. That result comes directly from how we've defined utility. It's not a statement about our current technology. Utility is meant to be something that exists only as a subjective perception in a person's mind. So if this is how we're defining utility, what can we do with it? What can we say about it? Well, one thing we can do in economic theory is to make statements about the relative utility of two or more alternatives for a given individual based on what that individual chooses to do. So, for example, if someone has a choice between A and B and chooses A rather than B, then we can say that person obtained more utility from A than B. Why can we say that? That's actually an interesting question. And the interesting bit revolves around whether we can say that because we're making an assumption about how people behave and then inferring something about utility, or we can say that because that's just how we define utility. Let's have an example so we can talk about something concrete. Let's say someone has a choice of A or B, and let's say because of some ethical principle that person subscribes to, let's say out of a sense of duty, according to some duty-based ethical theory, that person chooses A. Let's say, absent that ethical belief, that person would choose B. So, let's say A corresponds to not having a second slice of pie. And the person chooses A because she thinks it's her moral duty to choose A. She thinks she should leave some pie in case someone else wanders by and wants a piece of pie. Or whatever. It really doesn't matter for our purposes what ethical principle she's relying upon. But suppose if she didn't have this ethical belief or motivation, then she'd go ahead and choose B, which, let's say, is having the second slice of pie, because she likes pie, and she wouldn't mind having another piece of pie. So the question is, did this person maximize her utility when she chose A, which was not having the second slice of pie? In the world of economic theory, the answer is always yes. She maximized utility. It's not a behavioral assumption. 
It's not an inference about utility. It's not a question of why she chose A. In fact, there's a special principle in economics, which is conventionally given in Latin, presumably to indicate its great significance, which says, De gustibus non est disputandum, which means something like, in matters of taste, there can be no disputes. And under that other great unwritten principle of economics, that nothing can ever be said clearly or directly, taste, in this case, is meant to refer to motivations in general, including ethical principles. Not taste in the narrow sense of having or not having a taste for pie. The application of that maxim, within the field of economics, is that it really doesn't matter why someone chooses one thing over another. We're going to attribute greater utility to whatever that person chooses, no matter his or her motivations. If one gets a little confused on this point, and many people do appear to get confused on this point, one may get the wrong end of the stick. And suppose what we're doing is inferring the level of utility with the inference supported by a behavioral assumption that people maximize utility. If one then adds some extraneous content to utility, in the sense of propositions about what true happiness means or what sort of motivations lead to true happiness, in other words, if one gets into the business of disputing tastes in direct contradiction to what one is meant to be doing in economic theory, then one might suppose true happiness or utility comes from something like fulfilling one's baser appetites or expressing one's narrow self-interest and not thinking about other people or ethical principles and so on. In that case, one might conclude that the person in our example who chose A due to an ethical principle didn't really maximize her utility and hence wasn't behaving the way economic theory assumes she would behave. If one then combines that error with the notion that something good falls out of making this ostensible behavioral assumption, that it's useful in a scientific sense because it allows us to predict behavior, or one makes some of the other errors we'll talk about a little later that can lead one to suppose if people would only behave the way economic theory assumes they behave, then all manner of good things would follow, then one ends up at the famous greed is good maxim. That is, the ethical principle, we should restrict our attention to our own baser appetites or our own narrow self-interest and pay no attention to other ethical principles or other people. So, this error in interpretation is the first among many I'll be discussing here that can lead one to think economic theory is opposed to people applying ethical reasoning to what they perceive as economic issues or problems, when economic theory really says no such thing. Indeed, according to some news stories I've read, researchers have apparently found the mere act of studying, presumably badly taught economics, tends to make students more selfish and act more out of their own narrow self-interest. If those results are correct and hold up over time, one can only presume that's because the students in question are operating under the influence of the errors we just discussed and have come to think economic theory says something like, it's normal for people to be selfish. Or that the supposed scientific usefulness of economic models implies other people act as though they're selfish, implying everyone else might as well join the club. Or, if everyone were selfish, then all manner of good things would follow. 
So apparently there's some empirical evidence for real antisocial behavioral consequences from allowing these errors go unchecked. But that was all in the nature of an aside, really. Let's get back to the main plot, which was that within the context of economic theory, we can make statements about the relative utility of two or more courses of action for a single individual based on what that individual chooses to do. That's what economists call revealed preferences. That's the one situation where we can make statements about utility. That's it. What we most emphatically cannot do is make any sort of statement about the relative utility of choices across different people. So, for example, if we have two people and two goods, A and B, and one person chooses A and one person chooses B, we don't know and never could know which person is getting more utility from the good he or she chose. Similarly, if both people preferred A, we don't know and never could know which one of them would get more utility from A. As I suggested before, this is a very powerful, distinctive, interesting consequence of this particular interpretation of utility. So at the risk of beating a dead horse, let's spend a little bit more time on it just to make sure we're getting it. Let's do another example. This time, let's say we have a ham sandwich and two people, a starving person who really wants and needs that sandwich, and another person who just ate a three-course dinner and doesn't really like ham sandwiches, but who will condescend to shove it down his throat if it's available. Can we say anything about which one of them would get more utility from the sandwich in the context of economic theory? No. As I just said a few moments ago, we cannot. If we're sticking to the definition of utility we use in economic theory, we don't know and never could know which one of those two people would get more utility from the sandwich. We could just ask them how happy they would be if they got the sandwich. Presumably the starving person would say something like, I would be very, very happy if I got the sandwich. And the other person might say something like, maybe I'd be a little happy. In terms of the utility used in economic theory, that doesn't tell us anything relevant. Because when it comes to this inaccessible, subjective perception of happiness, we don't know how really happy, in one person's mind, stacks up against a little bit happy in another person's mind. Maybe one person is just a lot more sensitive to happiness, or more capable of generating internal perceptions of happiness. The same will be true of any observable indication of happiness. Instead of asking them, we could look at their behavior. Maybe the starving person jumps up and down with joy when he gets the sandwich, and the other person just gives a little half-smile or whatever. That's irrelevant. That has no necessary relationship to utility, as used in economic theory. We could do brain scans and look at the neurons that fire when people appear happy. And maybe we observe the starving person has more of these neurons firing when he gets the sandwich than the other fellow has when he gets the sandwich. I suppose we would know who's happier in some scientific sense defined in terms of neural activity, but that's not what we're talking about in economics. We're talking about an inherently inaccessible, unobservable, unmeasurable, internal, subjective perception of happiness. So brain scans, like all other observable indications of happiness, are irrelevant. So that brings up the question, 
Given our inability to make these interpersonal utility comparisons using the sort of utility we use in economic theory, what does the ethical proposition we should maximize utility imply in the case of this sandwich dilemma? Who should get the sandwich? It doesn't say anything at all. The proposition we should maximize utility is entirely empty in this multi-person conflict case. This means that if our idea of social ethics includes resolving conflict situations, such as this sandwich dilemma, in some way other than arm wrestling or rock throwing or what have you, then we really need to come up with some additional ethical propositions beyond just maximizing utility as we've defined it. We couldn't make our entire system of social ethics upon maximizing utility as we've defined it, because we're going to end up in the same situation whenever two or more people want the same thing, or need the same thing, or feel they have a stronger ethical claim to the same thing. In other words, we're going to end up in this situation a lot. Indeed, these sorts of interpersonal conflict situations are what we usually have in mind when we think of the more difficult sort of ethical issues. We don't usually think of ethical conundrums arising when we're talking about one person in isolation deciding whether to eat an apple or an orange. So the ethical proposition, we should maximize utility as it is defined in economic theory, gets us only a part of a complete system of social ethics. And given the sorts of situations where we could actually use it, a trivially small part of a complete system of social ethics. What this shows is that utility, as we're using it in economic theory, does not and cannot fulfill the function of utility in a proper utilitarian ethical theory of the sort one might find in serious ethical philosophy. Because in the case of a proper utilitarian ethical theory, utility is meant to be the basis of the overall system of ethics. That's the whole point. That's why it's a utilitarian ethical theory. If a serious philosopher presented what she described as a utilitarian ethical theory, but utility turned out to be only relevant in the most ethically trivial situations, she would be laughed out of the room. However, as significant as that issue is, we have a much, much bigger problem here, which is, it's not hard at all to show that the goal of maximizing utility, as we've defined it here, is totally implausible in an ethical sense. Let's do that right now. Let's do a little thought experiment. Philosophers do this sort of thing all the time. Imagine one day we had a dream, and in this dream we had superpowers. One of our superpowers was that we could empathize with other people so completely we could actually sense their subjective perceptions of happiness, and we could make interpersonal utility comparisons. Let's think about the implications in our dream world of the ethical proposition, we should maximize utility. Given the way we've defined utility, it's entirely possible that in our dream world, one person's subjective perceptions of happiness, which we're calling utility, are so much greater or more intense or more powerful than everyone else's that the goal of maximizing utility implies we should just go along with whatever that one individual wants to do. So let's say in our dream world, that very special person is not a very nice person and decides on a whim he wants to kill off everyone else in the world. 
It's entirely possible his utility, from killing off everyone else in the world, even in response to a passing whim, might be greater than the combined utility of everyone else fulfilling their desires to carry on living. So, if we were serious about the ethical proposition we should maximize utility, that's what we would do. We'd kill off everyone else in the world, including, eventually, ourselves, to satisfy that one very special person's momentary whim. So, would we be happy in our dream world? Would we be satisfied with how we had lived our lives? Shortly before killing ourselves, we'd observe one person exuding utility all over the place and a big pile of dead people. Is it plausible to think we would find something so ethically attractive and special and significant about this great font of utility we had created that we would feel we were entirely justified killing off everyone in the world, including ourselves, to bring it about? I don't know about you, but it sounds a little crazy to me. It doesn't sound like a plausible ethical proposition to me at all. Indeed, I think the nearer I came to my goal of maximizing utility in my dream world, the more my dream will have turned into a rather horrible nightmare. Fortunately, we wake up, and in the real world we're saved from ever being put in that situation, because we don't really have superpowers, and we can't really sense other people's subjective perceptions of happiness or make interpersonal utility comparisons, so we're fine in a practical sense. But consider, does it really matter, in terms of ethical philosophy, if we can or can't do it in a practical sense? We're ostensibly arguing that as a matter of ethical principle, we should maximize utility. That's ostensibly our goal that we're working toward. But at the same time, we're saying thank goodness we can't really maximize utility, because that would be pretty horrible if we could. It doesn't make sense philosophically. The proposition that we should maximize utility under this interpretation of utility is not a serious or a plausible ethical proposition. If we were interested in developing a serious definition of utility someone might sincerely want to maximize, then clearly we'd have some work to do. Like what exactly? I don't know. That's what utilitarian philosophy is all about. I would say, if you're familiar at all with the history of philosophical utilitarianism, one thing that has probably jumped out at you is that the goal of maximizing utility in economic theory addresses only one half of Jeremy Bentham's famous early formulation of the goal of philosophical utilitarianism, which was the greatest happiness of the greatest number. We've clearly delved into the greatest happiness part, but we haven't said anything about the greatest number part. And that's really what gave us our funny result, that it didn't matter that only one person ended up being happy, and everyone else ended up dead. It seems reasonable to me to suppose Mr. Bentham was not just throwing words around when he formulated the objective of his own version of a utilitarian ethical philosophy. So that discrepancy would seem, to me, a likely place to start, But again, we're not doing a class in serious utilitarian philosophy. All I want to establish here is that if we accept this interpretation of utility in economic theory as something that exists in the form of subjective perceptions of happiness, 
then the ethical proposition, we should maximize utility, has only the most trivial of applications in the context of a complete system of social ethics, but much more significantly is completely implausible in an ethical sense. If the proposition seems reasonable or plausible to you, it's probably because, by happy coincidence, the results that fall out of maximizing utility defined in that way correspond to results you support on some other basis that doesn't really involve that sort of utility at all. And that serves as a very good introduction to the second and very different interpretation of utility as used in economic theory. This second, and I would say more modern, interpretation of utility as used in economic theory is that the word utility doesn't refer to anything. Utility doesn't exist. It doesn't exist even in the murky metaphysical sense of existing as a subjective perception in someone's mind. In the second interpretation, there is no utility. It's just a word we use in economic theory to express other ethical propositions that have nothing to do with utility. If one likes, we can think of expressing these other ethical propositions using the word utility as a sort of word game or parlor game. So how does the second interpretation work? What ethical propositions are we expressing in economic theory using the word utility? Well, to figure that out, we need to look at the implications of the proposition we should maximize utility in the context of economic theory. In the case of a single person, in isolation, recall the implication of the proposition we should maximize utility was that we should let that person do whatever he or she wanted to do. So, if we expressed that proposition without using the word utility, it would be something like, if someone has a choice of alternatives and his or her choice has no effect on anyone else, then we should just let that person do whatever he or she wants to do. So, that would be one ethical proposition we expressed indirectly using the word utility. In the case of more than one person, recall the implication of the proposition we should maximize utility was that we couldn't say anything about how to resolve interpersonal conflicts of needs or desires. Obviously, that's not a very plausible proposition in the context of an overall system of social ethics. However, if we think of it as referring specifically to economic theory, so the proposition becomes something like, in the context of economic theory, we can't say anything about how to resolve interpersonal conflicts of needs or desires, then I suppose that's plausible enough. Economists can think and talk about whatever they like in the context of their own theory. So if they say they don't want to look at something, I suppose that's fine. So that would be the second ethical proposition we expressed indirectly using the word utility. But don't get me wrong here. When I say that second proposition seems fine, I mean fine as a matter of logic and philosophy. It's certainly odd, because this whole issue of resolving interpersonal conflicts of needs and desires appears in an economic context as the issue of determining where goods and services and wages and profits and economic power in general are going, and hence how interpersonal conflicts of needs and desires end up being resolved on the basis of economic power in the marketplace, which we collectively call distributive issues, 
and addressing these distributive issues is one of the main functions of any economic system, and as one might expect, by far the most controversial function. So there's something a little funny about having a field ostensibly devoted to delving into economic issues and analyzing economic issues that explicitly states up front it doesn't intend to take up the most significant and controversial of economic issues, which are the distributional issues. It would be much more obviously odd if economists express this proposition in plain English instead of playing the parlor game of using the word utility, and if people didn't make some of the other errors I'll be discussing later that can make it seem as though economic theory does address those distributional issues after all. In other words, errors that can make it seem as though economic theory addresses distributional issues out of one side of its mouth while denying it's addressing them out the other side. A final question under the second interpretation of utility is why would anyone do that? Why would anyone express ethical propositions using the word utility if he or she didn't think any such thing existed? That's also an interesting question, and I'd have to say there's a benign interpretation and a less benign interpretation of how this may have come to be. The benign interpretation is the field of economics has been around a long time, since the 18th or early 19th century when it was considered a branch of moral philosophy, and it has long been based on utility. So later economists may have viewed using the word utility as a sort of pre-existing constraint, and when they decided to revise the ethical propositions expressed in economic theory, they may have decided they could play with the interpretation of utility but they couldn't just stop talking about utility entirely. It would have been just too much work at that point to reconstruct the entire edifice of economic theory without using the word utility. However, since they weren't really philosophers and didn't fully understand the implications of what they were doing, all manner of funny things ensued. The less benign interpretation is that at some point during the development of modern economics, some rather unscrupulous economists decided they wanted to revise the ethical propositions expressed in economic theory, but decided to continue presenting their arguments in terms of the word utility, even though they had no real interest in utility, as a means of muddying the waters or throwing people off the scent, while using economic theory to deliberately, albeit implicitly, promote some other ethical beliefs relating to distributional issues, by setting up the conditions and encouraging people to make some of the errors and misinterpretations we'll be discussing a little later that can make it appear as though economic theory says things about distributional issues it really does not. You can think whatever you like. I'll give you my opinion at the end of the talk. So let's wind up our discussion of utility in the context of economic theory and just review a few points. Does all the talk about utility in economic theory mean that economic theory is a utilitarian ethical theory or a form of utilitarianism? No, not at all. It uses the language and framework of utilitarianism, but it doesn't represent anything that could plausibly be called a utilitarian ethical theory. Under the older and more traditional interpretation of utility, where it exists as a subjective perception, 
Economic theory restricts its use to a trivial subset of situations, basically someone acting in isolation, where other people are not affected in any way. But much more significantly, it presents a concept of utility no one would sincerely want to maximize if he or she could. Under the newer interpretation of utility in economic theory, in which utility doesn't exist, but it's just a word we use to express ethical propositions that are not based on utility, there's obviously no real substantive relationship between ethical utilitarianism and economic theory. They may use the same language, and there may be some coincidental congruence of results in some situations, but that's about it. So, economic theory does not represent any form of plausible utilitarian ethical theory, and moreover, this whole business of how utility is defined and used in economic theory raises some huge red flags about the motivation and behavior of economists who developed the theory and who continue to use it to this day. We already saw one example of how confusion relating to economic theory can affect the discussion of distributional issues, which was the error of interpretation that led to the greed is good maxim and the corresponding implication that economic theory says or implies there's something inappropriate about thinking about other people and hence having distributional concerns in the first place. But that's not the end of our story by any means. That's just the beginning. There's a lot more funny business going on in economic theory beyond irregularities and ambiguities relating to the word utility. And interestingly, they all end up generating the same general misperception, that economic theory says more about distributional issues than it really does. Before continuing, let's pause for a moment and consider what economic theory really says about the supposed optimality of the free market. To do that, we first need to talk about this phrase, the free market. One would typically not encounter the phrase, the free market, in any serious or rigorous economic context because there are many potential market structures one might find in a free market. What economic theory purports to establish as socially optimal is not the free market, but a particular market structure called a perfectly competitive market. To express theoretical findings about perfectly competitive markets in terms of the phrase of the free market, you need to add a proposition or a hypothesis or a finding that if we let markets run free, however one wants to interpret that, then markets will become or approximate perfectly competitive markets. It's not at all clear that's the case. Some markets might run toward the perfectly competitive end of the spectrum, but some may tend more toward other market structures, such as monopoly or oligopoly, for example, and we might need a great deal of government regulation to make those markets approximate perfectly competitive markets, which makes using the term the free market in those cases a little problematic. But I don't want to make a big issue out of this here, because there's a whole literature out there about what conditions are required for a perfectly competitive market, how closely the conditions have to be met to get certain theoretical results, what happens when the conditions are not met, how often the conditions are met, and so on. I don't want to delve into those issues here. It's not what I want to talk about. So, I propose we just punt on this issue and say it's fine for our purposes, if you want to suppose a so-called free market, 
tends toward a perfectly competitive market. That will allow us to continue to refer to the common pseudo-economic language one hears from politicians and ideologues. So to return to the main point, all economic theory really says about the optimality of perfectly competitive markets, or in the vernacular, free markets, is if we set aside any ethical concerns we may have relating to how to resolve interpersonal conflicts, including the distributional issues associated with resolving these interpersonal conflicts based on economic power in the marketplace, and we have the conditions associated with a perfectly competitive market or a free market, then we should get what most people would agree is a socially optimal outcome, where utility of the sort discussed in economic theory is maximized, or if you want to leave out the word utility, an outcome where the ethical propositions we expressed using the word utility are met. Conversely, if we move into the context of a more complete system of social ethics, and we're no longer setting aside ethical concerns about resolving interpersonal conflicts and distributional issues, then economic theory really has nothing to say about the relative desirability of perfectly competitive markets or free markets beyond if one can address one's distributional concerns and simultaneously have a perfectly competitive market or a free market, then one should prefer that to addressing one's distributional concerns, but having a different market structure. When properly understood, the conclusions of economic theory can best be characterized as innocuous and non-controversial, which is exactly what we would expect from a theory that is meant to not take up the controversial distributional issues. If you have the idea economic theory says something more than that, and, I, and as I implied earlier, it's quite common for people to believe it says something more than that, and in particular says something like, we shouldn't address anyone's distributional concerns if it means not having a perfectly competitive market or a free market. What's going on is either that some other ethical propositions relating to distributional issues are being pulled in from outside economic theory and tacked on, or there's some confusion about what economic theory really says or how it works. So let's carry on and look into some of those issues. A few moments ago, I said one of the ways people can make economic theory appear to say something about distributional issues it really does not is to import into economic theory ethical propositions that don't really involve utility as used in economic theory and maybe aren't even expressed using the word utility. An interesting example of this phenomenon involves ethical propositions relating to property rights, which enter economic theory not through the front door, at the fundamental stage of defining utility and setting up the goal of maximizing utility, but through the back door, in this case at the stage of thinking about the conditions required to have a perfectly competitive market, or really any functioning market at all. I know I said before I didn't want to get into the conditions required for a perfectly competitive market, but maybe we can make an exception for this one. To see what we're talking about, imagine this scenario. A man waves a gun at another man and orders him to hand over his wallet. A police officer is standing by, ready and able to intervene. Consider the question, should we support the police officer intervening? and preventing the man with the gun making off with the wallet? 
If we restrict ourselves to thinking about utility, as used in economic theory, and the ethical proposition we should maximize utility, we'd be indifferent. Because we don't really know who would get more utility from the wallet. The man with the gun, or the man currently holding the wallet. Obviously, we can't really have a market, if that's the way we're doing business. We'd have violent anarchy. One way to resolve that particular interpersonal conflict of needs or desires is to bring in the idea of a property right and the ethical proposition we should accept property rights. So that solves that conflict of desires. Let's say in our scenario, the wallet legally belongs to the man currently holding it. So as a matter of ethics, we would now support the police officer intervening so the man with the gun doesn't make off with the wallet. So... How do we know that solution maximizes utility? We don't. And didn't we just argue we should be indifferent in such cases? We did, but we're not being indifferent in this case. Or under the second interpretation of utility, in which it's just a word we used to express other ethical propositions unrelated to utility, wasn't one of the only two propositions we discussed the proposition that in the context of economic theory, we weren't going to take up how to resolve these conflicts of desires. It was. But we just said how we were going to resolve this one by referring to property rights. So that raises the question, is this ethical proposition about accepting property rights a part of economic theory? Do we have an internal contradiction built into the logic of economic theory? I'd say yes. If we're interpreting economic theory as saying or implying we should accept property rights, then we do have an additional ethical proposition that isn't based on utility, and we also have an internal contradiction, because we said on the basis of utility we would be indifferent when it comes to distributional issues. But then we resolved the distributional issue of who should have the wallet based on property rights. We could always reject the idea that economic theory says or implies we should accept property rights and say economic theory is indifferent even between having any sort of functioning market and violent anarchy. So that would eliminate the internal contradiction But then, economic theory pretty much loses any basis on which to evaluate anything. It becomes very obviously empty indeed. So, maybe it's better to just allow the introduction of this particular ethical proposition as a bona fide part of economic theory, and allow the internal contradiction on the grounds that maybe it's not a huge deal for most people because this additional proposition is fairly innocuous, since economic theory doesn't really say or imply anything about these property rights, such as where they come from, the ethical basis on which they're created, whether we can change them, and if so, how and on what basis, and so on. All we really need, for purposes of setting up the conditions of a market, is that at the moment of conflict, someone have some sort of property right. So, in that sense, one might argue we're still not taking up the issue of how to resolve these interpersonal conflicts of desires or distributional issues in any serious or substantive way. That's fine. However, vagueness in the definition of property rights doesn't make the ethical proposition we should accept property rights entirely vacuous. 
Anarchists in particular are famous for saying things like, they don't need no stinking laws. And that includes laws dealing with property rights, which as one might imagine, is what a lot of laws are actually about. Anarchists would not go along with the ethical proposition we should accept property rights, no matter how ambiguous we leave the property rights. So the proposition has a little bit of ethical content. It's a proper ethical proposition. But there's a much bigger potential problem with introducing this proposition, we should accept property rights as a part of economic theory, which is that it gives a convenient opening for people to try to slip in particular ideas about property rights and argue or imply these particular ideas about property rights are also part of economic theory. So if we're not careful here and we don't keep our eye on the ball, people may try to introduce a whole boatload of potentially very controversial external ethical content relating to property rights, including things like, for example, we can change property rights. That train has sailed. Or maybe property rights descend directly from the heavens or from Mother Nature, and no mortal being ever made them or could ever change them. Or maybe we can change property rights for some purposes, but addressing distributional concerns isn't one of them. Or maybe we can change property rights to address distributional concerns, but only if we're expressing certain ethical beliefs relating to distributional issues, and so on. All those things are fine, if you think so. We could discuss all of them in a philosophical context, but they're not part of economic theory. So just to summarize this section, the ethical proposition we should accept property rights is an example of an ethical proposition that doesn't arrive in economic theory explicitly at the initial stage of discussing utility and setting up the objective of maximizing utility, but implicitly via the back door, so to speak. And we saw that even though this additional ethical proposition technically contradicts the propositions we introduced when we discussed utility... Maybe it's not a big deal if we leave property rights sufficiently vague and ill-defined that we can still plausibly claim to be indifferent to distributional issues, except for the case of preferring some sort of market to violent anarchy. However, we then saw how that additional ethical proposition can facilitate the error of importing detailed and potentially controversial ethical propositions relating to property rights and trying to pass those off as a part of economic theory as well. So that's an example of how the structure of economic theory can facilitate an error that can lead one to suppose economic theory says more about distributional issues than it really does. Another way people can go astray interpreting economic theory is to get confused about words or phrases from everyday English that appear in economic theory, but in subtly different ways. A good example of this problem, I think, is the concept of efficiency as it is used in economic theory. The technical definition of efficiency in the context of economic theory isn't really important for what I want to say about it, so I won't go into that here. All we need to know for what I'm saying about it is that if we have a perfectly competitive market, then the outcome of that market will have the characteristic that it is efficient, as defined in economic theory. In terms of understanding the significance of efficiency in economic theory, 
the most important thing to realize is that there's not just one market outcome that has this quality of efficiency. If we're at some efficient market outcome and we change the distribution of resources or economic power in some way, we'll get a different pattern of demand and supply. And if we maintain or reinstitute a perfectly competitive market structure, we won't end up back at the original efficient market outcome. We'll end up at a new and different efficient market outcome. Can we compare the desirability of the two efficient market outcomes within economic theory? No, because what we did to move from one to the other was change the distribution of economic power, which changed how interpersonal conflicts are resolved on the basis of economic power in the marketplace. And as we established before, we can't make the interpersonal utility comparisons that would allow us to compare the desirability of those outcomes. What's going on here is that economists are ostensibly trying to separate out the ethically controversial distributional issues on the one hand from the issue of what happens when we set up a perfectly competitive market in the absence of any distributional issues, or if you prefer, setting aside distributional issues. This attempt to theoretically separate out the case for a perfectly competitive market or a free market from the distributional context in which all real markets inevitably exist can create a whole lot of confusion if we're not careful. One thing to keep in mind here is that the relative desirability of efficiency over inefficiency in economic theory only properly applies if we're talking about the same distribution. If we look at two market outcomes, one of which is efficient and one inefficient, but they have different distributions of economic power, we would be indifferent between those two outcomes in the context of economic theory. So economic theory doesn't imply that an efficient market outcome is necessarily preferable to an inefficient market outcome. Efficiency is not a global concept in economic theory. That can be a little confusing to people because in everyday language we sometimes use efficiency as a global concept. So it can seem odd to say we're indifferent between an efficient outcome and an inefficient outcome. It's very common to hear arguments along the lines of one shouldn't address distributional concerns because it would be inefficient, or create inefficiencies, or impair the efficiency of the market, and so on. Those are not correct ways of talking about efficiency in the context of economic theory. Here's an illustration of what's going on in a non-economic context. Let's say we want to go to New York City, but the only mode of transportation we can find is an old, broken-down, inefficient bus. Someone finds us the most modern, efficient plane to L.A. Which mode of transportation should we choose? The efficient one or the inefficient one? Well, that's a confusing way of asking the question, isn't it? If we're talking about different goals, as in this case, and we're talking about only two choices, then we would go with the choice that leads us toward our goal, regardless of how it compares in terms of efficiency with the choice that leads us somewhere else. Since we said we wanted to go to New York, if we only have the two choices I just described, then we would prefer the inefficient bus to New York over the efficient plane to L.A. 
So this, again, is another way economic theory can be presented as saying something about distributional issues it really doesn't. Economic theory doesn't say we shouldn't address distributional concerns if it means moving away from an efficient market outcome or a perfectly competitive market outcome or in the vernacular a free market outcome, even if it means moving to an inefficient market outcome, a non-perfectly competitive market outcome, or a non-free market outcome. A more elaborate version of this same basic error says, okay, yes, in the context of economic theory, we should be indifferent between efficient market outcomes and other market outcomes, be they efficient or inefficient, that involve different distributions of economic power. However, Economic theory implies we should only address distributional concerns if we do so in a way that is as consistent as possible with efficiency. That is to say, as, cons- as consistent as possible with a perfectly competitive market or a free market, or in the extreme version of this argument, since any given inefficient market outcome will theoretically have an efficient market outcome that is preferable to it, we should just forget entirely about the pesky, non-efficient market outcomes and say as a practical matter, we need only be concerned about indifference between the efficient outcomes. That is, the perfectly competitive market outcomes or the free market outcomes associated with different distributions, which implies we can set up establishing or maintaining perfectly competitive markets or free markets as a valid objective no matter our distributional concerns. So let's see how these arguments work, or rather, don't work. First, a bit of backstory may be helpful. Two common ways economists modify distributions in economic models is they either change what they call the initial distribution, which is the distribution in time period one, when they start the whole model going, or they do something called a transfer in some later time period and just end up with some other distribution. The concept of changing the initial distribution doesn't really have any counterpart in the real world because obviously we can't go back to time period one and change the initial distribution. The concept of a transfer sounds like it might have a counterpart in the real world, but it can create a whole lot of confusion when applied in realistic settings because it can give rise to the notion there is a bright line or a clear distinction or boundary between distributions and market structures such that we don't have to worry about distributions when thinking about market structures. We can just concentrate on setting up a perfectly competitive market, or in the vernacular, a free market, get to any perfectly competitive market outcome or free market outcome, and then, as a separate, discrete step, if anyone has any distributional concerns based on ethical principles external to economic theory, we can always just do one of these transfers, and end up at a different, perfectly competitive market outcome or free market outcome that addresses those distributional concerns without ever really diverging in any significant way or in the extreme version of the argument, diverging at all from the conditions of a perfectly competitive market or a free market. That is, never departing in any significant way or in the extreme case at all from efficiency as defined in economic theory. Again, if we could do that, it would mean we could set up establishing or maintaining perfectly competitive markets or free markets as a valid objective no matter our distributional concerns. In terms of our New York and L.A. scenario, it's like someone saying, look, I understand you're trying to get to New York, 
but just take the efficient plane to LA and don't even worry about it. Once you're in LA, we can always transfer you to New York with no problem. All you have to worry about is which mode of transportation is most efficient. You don't have to worry at all about where you're going. That sounds pretty great, right? It certainly simplifies the problem in some respects. But clearly a lot is hinging on this transfer. How exactly are we transferring from L.A. to New York? Is it even a real thing? Does it exist? Is it technically feasible? Is it available? What does it cost? Is it more expensive than if we just took the inefficient bus to New York in the first place? Before we'd agree to fly off to L.A. on our very efficient plane, we'd obviously want to be quite clear about how the subsequent transfer from L.A. to New York was meant to work. If we weren't clear about how it was meant to work, we'd probably prefer to just take the inefficient bus to New York, because at least we'd know we were headed in the right direction, and we wouldn't end up stranded in L.A., So, returning to our world of economic theory and economic modeling, what do we really know about these transfers that we're meant to use to address our distributional concerns? All we really know is that they're meant to be as consistent as possible, or in the extreme case, entirely consistent, with the conditions of a perfectly competitive market or a free market, or in other words, efficiency. Sounds superficially reasonable, but really, it's a bit of a minefield. One issue is that based on this concept of a transfer, people may try to import into economic theory the ethical proposition that if we can't address distributional concerns in the ostensibly best way possible by using one of these transfers, then we shouldn't address them at all. That proposition is not in economic theory. Economic theory says we should be indifferent between outcomes with different distributions regardless of whether we use the best approach possible to get from one to the other. And it's not a very compelling proposition in general. The best way of expressing one's ethical concerns is not always available or feasible. And it's very unlikely many people would agree with the proposition they should just throw their ethical beliefs out the window whenever that happens. A more significant issue is that if we're not careful these transfers can end up being interpreted in such a way that they don't actually exist, or at least become incredibly difficult to implement and confusing even to conceptualize. In which case, the proposition one should address one's distributional concerns only if one uses one of these transfers may as well be one should only address one's distributional concerns if one first goes on a quest and captures a mythical unicorn, or what have you. In other words, it becomes an elaborate way of preventing someone from trying to address his or her distributional concerns. The number one thing we need to do to make sure these transfers actually exist and are a realistic, practical, understandable way to address distributional concerns is to keep a careful eye on what we're saying about the labor market, and in particular, two different aspects of the wages people receive on the labor market. First, the role of wages as an element of a perfectly competitive market or a free market, and second, the role of wages as one element of a distributional system. The underlying complication with the labor market is that in the world of economic theory, Labor simultaneously plays two distinct and very different roles. 
First, labor is a so-called factor of production or a productive resource, like a wrench. And when we think of a perfectly competitive market, or in the vernacular, a free market, we imagine these factors of production being allocated in a specific way or pattern according to market mechanisms and the pattern of demand and supply that flow from a particular distribution of economic power. Second, labor is people, the generators of utility. The focus of ethical beliefs relating to distributional issues. In this second role, labor is totally different from other factors of production, like wrenches. The wages workers receive on the labor market are relevant to both roles. Wages serve to allocate labor according to the market principles that are meant to apply to all factors of production in a perfectly competitive market or a free market, and it's one of the things along with other things, like the investment market, inheritance, lotteries, and so on, that plays into the distribution of economic power, and hence governs the resolution of interpersonal conflicts on the market. It's an awkward way of conceptualizing things that is built right into the structure of economic theory, and it can easily create a lot of confusion. One common error one encounters in this context is the idea that economic theory imbues wages in a perfectly competitive market or a free market with some special ethical significance in terms of distributional issues, and that in order to have a perfectly competitive market or a free market, economic power must be distributed according to the market principles that govern wages on the labor market plus whatever other random distributional mechanisms one wants to throw in there, like the investment market, inheritance, lotteries, and so on. That is not correct. There is no special ethical significance within economic theory to the wages workers receive on the labor market. If there were, then there would obviously be no such thing as a transfer that could be consistent with a perfectly competitive market or a free market, However, more significantly, there would be no sense in which one could be indifferent to distributional issues in the context of economic theory. The labor market would resolve distributional issues by assigning wages and would give us the one correct answer to our distributional concerns. Just to be clear, it's fine if one has ethical beliefs relating to wages in a perfectly competitive market or a free market, and one feels that is the correct basis on which we should resolve interpersonal conflicts of desires and needs in the marketplace, that is to say, resolve distributional issues, along with whatever else one feels should play into the distribution of economic power, such as the investment market, inheritance, lotteries, and so on. But one should realize that at that point, one is talking about ethical philosophy. It has nothing to do with economic theory. Another version of this same basic error relies on confusion about the definition of perfectly competitive markets or free markets to make transfers disappear. Given that wages in a perfectly competitive market or a free market play into the distributional system, if one has ethical beliefs relating to distributions that don't correspond entirely to what's going on in the labor market, 
And we're talking about addressing those distributional concerns with transfers. Then we would necessarily be talking about some sort of continuous system of transfers to complement or adjust the continuous distributional mechanism of wages in the labor market. If we don't have an interpretation of a perfectly competitive market or a free market that includes the potential for this system of continuous transfers, then obviously it becomes nonsensical to have as our objective a perfectly competitive market or a free market that addresses someone's distributional concerns using transfers. Economic theory certainly shows it would be nice if we could address our distributional concerns while at the same time having a perfectly competitive market or a free market, but it doesn't show any such solution is necessarily feasible or practical or cost-effective and so on. Because of the lack of a bright line or a clear boundary between market structures and distributional issues due to the role the labor market plays in both areas, as a practical matter, the easiest or cheapest or most feasible way of addressing one's distributional concerns may involve departing from the conditions of a perfectly competitive market or a free market in some respect, such as changing conditions in the labor market, which is what makes the indifference within economic theory to different distributions so significant, even when it means moving away from an efficient market outcome to a non-efficient market outcome, or from a perfectly competitive market or a free market to a non perfectly competitive market or a non-free market. So, just to summarize this section, another way economic theory can be made to appear to say something more about distributional issues than it really says is to suggest it limits the acceptable approaches to addressing distributional concerns to only certain approaches that are as consistent as possible with perfectly competitive markets or free markets, or at the extreme, entirely consistent with perfectly competitive markets or free markets. Economic theory doesn't say that. That's an error. Economic theory says... If we can address distributional concerns in a way that's consistent with a perfectly competitive market or a free market, that's fine as a best-case scenario. But if we can't, for whatever reason, we still need to maintain indifference with respect to distributional issues, even if it turns out the only way we can realistically or practically address distributional concerns is to depart from a perfectly competitive market or a free market. And we had a two-for-one in this section because we saw that another way economic theory can be made to appear to say something more about distributional issues than it really says is to incorrectly suppose economic theory grants some special ethical significance to the wages workers receive in a perfectly competitive market or free market, which would contradict the notion that we should be indifferent to distributional issues within the context of economic theory. Economic theory doesn't grant any special ethical significance to the wages workers receive in a perfectly competitive market or a free market. Economic theory doesn't say we can only address distributional concerns if we don't change the economic power of labor or if we don't change the incentives and behaviors of workers on the labor market. Let's do one more and call it a day, shall we? 
Another common misinterpretation of economic theory involves professing indifference to distributional issues while assigning implicitly or explicitly some sort of special status or significance to the existing or status quo distribution. The argument in its most basic form is that the implication of being unable or unwilling to address distributional concerns in the context of economic theory is that within economic theory or from the perspective of economic theory, we should support whatever distribution happens to be in place. How does this play out in real life? Typically, someone says something like, she has some distributional concerns she thinks we should address, and an economist or someone else interpreting economic theory badly will oppose her suggestion on the grounds there's no acceptable rationale for addressing distributional concerns in economic theory. The problem with this argument is that it's not really expressing indifference to distributional issues. It's taking a position on distributional issues. It's perfectly correct to say there could never be any reason coming from within economic theory to change a distribution. However, there could equally never be any reason coming from within economic theory to not change a distribution or to maintain a distribution. In other words, true indifference implies just that, indifference. In the context of economic theory, one should never find oneself taking sides when other people say they want to address some distributional concern or other. One should be indifferent. Let's consider this in the context of our scenario of the man with the gun and the other man with the wallet and the police officer. What we're saying in this argument is something like, we can't tell who would get more utility from the wallet, or if you prefer, we just don't want to take up the issue of who should have the wallet. So we'll be neutral or indifferent, and we'll support the police officer intervening in the situation, thus allowing the man with the wallet to keep the wallet. Hopefully in this example, it's a little more obvious that's not being neutral. There's no practical difference between that and just saying, we support the guy with the wallet for whatever reason. Being neutral or indifferent implies we'd be indifferent about whether the police officer intervenes or not. We wouldn't take sides. We wouldn't have an opinion. So to summarize this section, we saw again how certain errors in the interpretation of economic theory can lead people to suppose economic theory says more about distributional issues than it really does. In this case, by suggesting economic theory says or implies we should express indifference to distributional issues by supporting the existing or status quo distribution and opposing all arguments to change it in any way. That seems like quite enough for one day, so let's wind it up and just quickly go over some of the main points. Properly considered, economic theory doesn't have anything to say about distributional issues or the most ethical way to resolve interpersonal conflicts of needs or desires, keeping in mind the exception we made for the special added proposition we should prefer a functioning market to anarchy, and the result that we should be indifferent to distributional issues is foreordained by the concept of utility used in economic theory. 
Economists could clear up a lot of the confusion on this point anytime they liked by coming up with a serious, ethically plausible definition of utility one would really want to maximize if one could, or if they just expressed their ethical propositions directly rather than playing the parlor game of expressing them using the word utility, even though they're not really based on utility. However, economic theory is sometimes, or dare I say often, presented as saying something about distributional issues. In those cases, one thing that might be happening is that other ethical propositions not developed using the type of utility used in economic theory or expressed using that type of utility are being introduced through the back door, so to speak, one way or another and tacked on to economic theory. And those external ethical propositions are then incorrectly attributed to economic theory. One example we discussed were ethical propositions relating to particular conceptions of property rights. The other thing that might be happening when economic theory appears to be saying something about distributional issues, when it really doesn't, is that economic theory itself is being misinterpreted in some way that makes it appear to say something it doesn't really say. We saw a few examples of that one, including some funny business relating to efficiency and fake indifference. Significantly, all the assorted and diverse machinations we've discussed lead toward the same end, which is people getting the impression economic theory says something about distributional issues, and in particular, that economic theory stands in opposition to at least some people addressing their distributional concerns. Given that fact and the peculiar, disingenuous way economists talk about utility and many other issues, and the obvious and really rather vacuous results of economic theory when properly interpreted, I think it's only reasonable to suppose that the welfare economics component of neoclassical microeconomic theory was specifically designed by some economists as a rhetorical device to promote and defend certain ethical beliefs relating to distributional issues, not honestly or openly, but in an indirect, misleading, confusing way that one could only suppose was meant to protect those beliefs from criticism and debate. In other words, I think the only reasonable conclusion is that the field of welfare economics is not a serious intellectual enterprise at all but a bit of purposefully misleading rhetorical rigmarole. It's not real. It's not sincere. It does more to shut down the discussion of significant economic issues than to facilitate them. And it sheds a great deal more darkness than light on the evaluation of economic systems and policies. It's unfortunate we, as a society, have chosen to subject class after class of confused undergraduates to this misleading and manipulative pseudo-philosophy, with the inevitable result they've become unable to discuss economic issues, including, most importantly, distributional issues in any sensible way. The sooner we stop doing that, the better off we'll all be. That's all I had to say for today. A text version of this podcast is available at the Amazon Kindle bookstore, Goodbye for now, my friends.